Welcome back to another episode of the Montgomery Companies Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Montgomery, and today I am with Ben Higgins. Uh, I've been waiting for this conversation for a while. I'm super excited to share a conversation with my good friend, Ben. And most of you know Ben as The Bachelor on the 20th season that premiered in 2016. But you should also know this about Ben. Ben is an author, a speaker, an entrepreneur, a podcast host, and a down-to-earth rock star human being. He's a leader. He's getting married in November to his fiance, Jessica. And uh, he's a big-hearted guy that's deep. And um, we're gonna share a deep conversation today. But you should know this about Ben as well. He's the author of the book, Alone in Plain Sight, Searching for a Connection When You're Seen But Not Known. In 2017, Ben and his business partners founded Generous Coffee, a Denver-based roasted coffee business. The company uses its profits to support nonprofit organizations and other enterprises globally. Check out Generous Coffee. We're going to talk about that today as well. Ben is the host of Hope Still Wins, one of my new favorite podcasts, and is still the co-host of the hit show Almost Famous. As I mentioned, Ben is engaged to Jessica. They get married in November. He resides in Denver, Colorado. He's also dealing with a bum knee. I was with Ben in San Diego. This guy was tearing it up on a basketball court, tore his ACL for the third time. And so today he's down and out, but he's still here with us to have a conversation with our audience about life, leadership, love, and faith. Ben, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for being here. Quite the introduction. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it is funny uh, how the world goes around. Last time we were together, I was limping around trying to figure out what in the world world I was going to do or how I was going to get home. And now I'm sitting in a, in a chair after surgery, talking to you a little bit more recovered than before, but I'm pumped to be here, man. Well, we were in the middle of nowhere, like an hour away from any sort of like medical facility. You were a champ, man. You didn't say a single negative thing. Um, and you get your legs back. So you, you can walk two days before the wedding, correct? Two weeks. Two weeks before the wedding. Yeah. So I am able to start learning how to kind of put weight on it and walk two weeks before my wedding. So I've got a few weeks to go. Um, there's a weird like side of me that wants to be with a cane at my wedding. Like there's just a side <laughs> of me that thinks that if I can have that excuse to have like a really cool cane, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not going to be angry about it. I'm actually going to be fairly excited. Now my honeymoon, I would prefer not to be doing that, but if it has to happen, we'll have a beach theme cane for the honeymoon and a, a nice slick tux fitting cane for the wedding. And yeah, like maybe some people would feel extra sorry for you, uh, yeah. or, or, you know, get a few extra things, you know, there's nothing better you. than somebody feeling sorry for you on your wedding day. Like that's just, that's a right. good, yeah. that's a good <laughs> you're already the center of attention, but then on top of that, you've got all these people that are trying to do things for you. Could, oh, be, a pretty, yeah. could be a pretty sweet day. Oh, um, yeah. Well, let's go here, man. So, so here's the thing. A lot of people know you as The Bachelor. You're so much more than that. We're going to talk about that today. Um, but you have this crazy life story. And we love, we love interviewing people and spending time with people that have really unique and interesting life stories. And more specifically, I love people who've been through stuff that's been difficult. And yeah. some people would look at your situation and they'd say, well, what's difficult about that? Um, I'm going to let you talk about that. Because I know there's been some difficult parts of your journey and you were just this kid that was born in Warsaw, Indiana, like out in the country and you go to the University of Indiana, I should say Indiana University, right? IU. Yeah. And, but then your life explodes and you become this like 
famous public figure. And I'm not sure if you were ready for that. Uh, and I know it sort of rocked you in some really awesome ways, but also in some hard and difficult ways. So can you just walk us through that journey from like being raised in Indiana, normal life to all of a sudden overnight, your life kind of explodes and evolves? Definitely. Yeah. Well, first off, you know, I, I definitely have had pains and sorrows. And, um, but the truth of that is everybody has. And so one of the things I've learned as I've gotten older is, um, you know, it's really hard to dislike somebody once you hear their story. And then the second is, you know, you can assume pretty confidently that everybody in this world has had some type of pain and sorrow. And even if life on the outside looks perfect or, you know, I don't want to compare that my pains and my sorrows are any worse or any better than anybody else's, but we've all had them. So it connects us at some level. And so, um, you know, I, I have my moment, my, my lessons learned moments, but yeah, I grew up in Indiana uh, in a small town. Uh, mo- it's called worse on And I actually grew up on a side of it called Winona Lake. It's a great little town, man. It's, um, at one point it was, uh, the Methodist capital of the world. I think it's now the grace brethren capital of the world, which is like a, a pretty small Midwestern, um, denomination. So it's, it's a very Christian, I guess the point is like, you can get an idea. It's a very Christian town, um, which is so great for so many reasons and pretty like hard for others because uh, you don't really get a great picture of the world. You kind of get put in a bubble. Um, and, uh, and you're also kind of pressured, I would say, into a faith that uh, maybe is not your own, or maybe you're, you're still exploring and you kind of get pressured into these corners. And so that was kind of my childhood is uh, being Christian was cool. Um, everybody went to church. Um, everybody, at least on the outside, acted like they had life together. Uh, then I went to Indiana University. Well, I guess to pause there, it kind of makes sense for this story. Uh, I was an athlete uh, in my golden years of life. Uh, and in high school, uh, my junior year, I blew up my knee for the first time. So that changed everything for me. Um, it changed my identity. It changed my hopes. It changed kind of everything I'd grown up wanting to do. Um, and so that was my first big, like, young childhood struggle was learning how to adjust to that and um, hurt my knee pretty bad the first time. And uh, then went to Indiana University as just a student, had to go and, and watch my buddies who I played AU basketball with play at IU. And I sat and became their their friend in the, in the stands, um, which was humbling and hard and weird. And I wasn't adjusting well to it. Um, left IU. And uh, moved out to uh, moved out to Denver, Colorado, uh, after a short stint in South America. I was living in Peru for a bit, working at a zoo and teaching English, and um, got broken up with by my girlfriend when I was down there. And I so I came back home to try to get her back. That didn't work. Uh, so I moved out to Denver, um, started a job out here, and uh, was really bad at my job. Um, and I and and like and I say all this to give like a little bit of perspective to where I was at in life. I, I moved to a city I didn't know anybody at. Um, I had a job that I didn't really love, that I wasn't good at. Um, I was still figuring out my identity. I was starting to become really comfortable with the idea that I was just going to live a life to make as n- enough money to pay the bills and to go home at night um, and then do it over and over and over again without any type of purpose or passion or value behind it. I was getting, I was getting my mindset to be okay with that. Um, when a lady at my office came up to me one day and she said, Ben, you're not dating. You don't have any friends out here and you don't really love your job. What are you doing? I said, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think this is just it. Like this is the rat race. This is the game. 
And, uh, and she said, if uh, casting calls are, are going on in Denver right now for The Bachelorette, if I take you down there and buy you lunch, would you go? I said, I'm not going to a casting call. She said, okay, would you come up to my office and we'll sign you up for the show? And I said, I'd do that. So we went up to her office, signed up for the show. About five days later, I got a phone call from ABC and they said, hey, we want to just talk to you about being on the show. And that's really, really that, where that started. And, uh, and as I walked through that experience, um, my gauge for that was, hey, I just want to shake life up a bit. Like that was kind of my prayer, honestly, was just like, uh, I need something new. And this feels like something new in front of me is something different. And that was really my only desire. I just wanted to feel like I had something going for me again because I, I really felt like I didn't. So you're at this kind of interesting place where um, you're, you're about to jump into something new. You're sort of excited about it. Um, I'd love to hear what about it met your expectations? Like what were the things where you're like, oh yeah, that's kind of how I thought that would go. And then I, I know there were some things that were like completely unexpected um, about jumping into that experience. And, and just for our listeners to know this, like yeah. you were technically on the bachelorette uh-huh. before you were the bachelor. Yeah. Correct. Well, I mean, I think a whole thing rocked my world. Like you got to still understand I'm coming from a place like, I, I mean, I don't need to like double down on it, but like you got to understand where my mental space was. I, and you can assume I was not feeling very confident about myself, um, nor did I really know who I was uh, at all. And then all of a sudden the show says, hey, how about you come out and be on The Bachelorette? I fly out to L.A. It's the first in my life I've ever been to L.A. I land. There's a black car that picks me up. I'm starting to feel cool. Um, two, three days later, I arrive to a mansion. And in that car... On the way to the mansion, you, you get in a limo at a hotel and they drive you to the mansion to start the show. And I'm in this car with uh, like a former professional athlete, a current professional athlete, a doctor, uh, a fitness buff who looks like, you know, um, the statue of David um, and, and me. And I was a I was a user manual writer. Like, that's what I was. And I wasn't even a good one. Like, I was a terrible user manual writer. And I. I don't really have a lot to go from. I was a former high school athlete, like that didn't even complete, like that didn't even make it to the end. Like, and so I'm sitting there and I'm hearing all these stories. And I'm like, I don't belong here at all. And so I started to believe that. And I started to hide. Uh, I started to put myself in the corner. I started to um, kind of only engage in moments that I knew I could say something that was, that, that wouldn't be criticized. I was uh, a wallflower because I was looking around this room. I was like, I don't belong in this space. And the truth was most of my life in most scenarios, I felt like I, I didn't belong. Um, that kind of happened uh, early on as a kid. I read about a lot in Alone in Plain Sight, but the idea of just not feeling like I belong, not feeling like I was a part of anything. And this really heightened it, right? You want to you want to feel like you don't belong, just go on a show with a bunch of really good looking people who are very successful and have a lot of different stories. Well, the other part of this is um, on that show, you start to uh, your only form of entertainment is to hear other people's stories. And I started to hear all these other people's stories and, and my worldview or my, my view of the world, I guess I should say would probably be a better way to say that was getting shaken um, consistently and constantly. I was hearing people's, struggles with family. I was hearing people's, uh, the, the loss of, of close family members to them, um, um, raising children unexpected, like all these crazy stories are going on there. And my view of the world was being expanded and my, my faith wasn't exactly catching up. Like it wasn't, 
It wasn't ready for it. And so I'm going through this faith crisis um, during a time where I'm also being televised 24-7. So I don't really have a lot of time to process it. And I don't really have anybody to process it with. Um, and so I'm in this like in this transition season of life while at the same time being filmed for the first time and being shown now to millions of people for the, you know, that I didn't really understand it at the time, how much that would change me forever. Yeah. And I think what's important for maybe people that don't understand the show is this wasn't just like a typical show, typical series. It was like most watched, most viewed. Um, you made a comment that like kind of when you were going through that, if you wanted to be a part of something like people were down, they wanted to be around you. Like you, yeah. you had this meteoric rise uh, yeah. to, to fame, right. Is really the word that we would use to describe it. I mean, and I think that's why you wrote the book. Like uh, here's what it feels like to be seen, but not known. And there's oh, yeah. probably some people listening that can relate. Um, could you go, could you go deeper on this idea of being seen, but not, but not known. And maybe some of what you experienced throughout the climb and that rise and then sort of being on top. Yeah, definitely. Well, what happened about week four during my time on the show and um, was one of the producers came to me and he's a super smart dude. He's a good friend of mine. He goes, Ben, I don't like you. He's like, what? He goes, I don't like you because I don't know you. I said, what do you mean you don't know me? He goes, you say the right things at the right moments. You don't say anything in the hard moments and you stand against the wall and you hide. Why? And through a long conversation with him for the first time in my life, I was able to admit outwardly that I felt unlovable or I felt like I didn't belong or I felt that that nobody, when they got to know me better, was going to like me anymore. And when they got to know me better, they're going to pull away because they wouldn't like me because um, I didn't understand at that point a lot about myself. Again, I was going through this crisis and I think I had been going through this crisis for a long time. Well, long story short, and, and I think the relating factor of this is anybody's, you know, I got a weird part in my life where I was on TV. Um, that's just you know, a piece of my story. And it's also in, in relatable in a sense with a lot of people's stories where like, maybe you get a new job or maybe you have a kid for the first time, or maybe you get married or uh, maybe you're single and, and you're not looking. And so you finally became confident enough in yourself to admit that, Hey, you're just confident being single. Like these huge moments in these life, these transition moments, let's say mm -hmm. the show's that for me, a transition moment. Um, well, then I get off of it. And now people start to uh, want to hear me talk. For the first time in my life, I remember, and I say this, I tell this story, I was standing in front of a, a church group. I'm standing up in front of this group and it hit me. It's like, I've had these same ideas and these same feelings and these same thoughts for years in my life. But now, because I was on a reality television show, people are taking me serious. Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, it doesn't compute with me. And it started to make me feel like more uh, like uh, of an object in a lot of ways. It also started to make me feel um, really sad because... Um, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know personally, like what, how well people knew me and you could stand in front of an audience and people would clap or people would want a picture or whatever, but like the, the commitment to loving me well and supporting me well, I felt was fragile. Uh, I felt like it could fall apart at any time, at any moment that I had to say the right thing to the right group to the right people so that they would continue to follow me and like me. And if I did not then they would turn and run. Um, and then I became the bachelor and that really is where like this whole thing becomes almost comedic, uh, because I'm going through all this stuff. And then I get asked to be the bachelor and my pictures on the cover of magazines on the side of billboards. And it feels like a dream. It, it feels weird. I have this 
I've always had this big fear of the Truman Show ever since I first watched the movie. My life started to feel like the Truman Show. Like I really felt like I was living the Truman Show. And it was the same thing. I felt like I was, I was more involved with the world than ever, with people than ever, or more invited to have a seat at the table than ever. Yet I also felt more disconnected than ever because I felt like people were asking me to be there for something that I wasn't or something that I, uh, or I, I felt like in a sense, maybe I was more than what the bachelor was even portraying me as. And so I felt like I had to live up to this character of myself. Mm. So, um, and I wasn't ready for it. And, and to close that thought, like, again, I'm, I'm, I, 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 there's no prep. Um, nobody's meant to be famous. I don't think, I don't think anybody is meant to have that, that especially like that really quick rise to fame. I mean, I didn't have a skill set to fall back on. Like I'm not a dancer. Mm -hmm. I'm not a singer. I'm not an actor. Uh, I'm not a great athlete. Um, and so I become famous for what reason? Because I dated mm -hmm. people on television and that, and that was sad to me. Like mm -hmm. it was sad to me that that's the reason that people best knew me. Well, here's what I think you are. I think you're humble. I think you're gracious. I think you're down to earth and, and generous. And I think that's what you're becoming known for now and, and what you are known for now. And you're doing some work that really matters and it's important and it's significant. Um, but I think you're also really well positioned to meet people and reach people who are hurting or suffering or going through an identity crisis. Because all of us, to your point, whether you were on a TV show or you used to be an athlete or you used to have a certain job or a certain occupation, or uh, maybe you used to have a certain role in life that you no longer have. And so like, I think we've all wrestled with that at some point in our life, identity crisis becomes real. And some people listening are going through that right now. Yeah. Um, you talk about suffering and I, and I want to go there because you talk about suffering in this really beautiful way. And somebody needs to hear this today. This is going to be an encouragement to people who are listening and we'll just kind of riff on this topic of suffering. You said, find someone who is experiencing true joy, true connection, and true love who has not suffered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I want to know kind of why you said that, um, because then after that, you said suffering brings about perspective. Can mm -hmm. you talk about your suffering and just how that's shaped and changed your life? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you read... Um like ancient philosophy and modern philosophy. If you, if you uh, kind of explore um, the, this concept of suffering across different uh, like faith traditions, one of the things that always comes about is this idea that like suffering in itself is not always bad. Like there's something that is born from it, that there's a redemption that comes, um, you know, as a Christian, uh, I, the, I, you know, our, our story is one of redemption and reconciliation and, and of growth and something new, uh, of, you know, it's a story of revelation. It's a story of something mm -hmm. new coming about. And, and so as, as I started to suffer more and more in my life, be that maybe addiction, be that, uh, career changes, be that identity crisis, be that loss of family, loss of friends, um, you know, I, I was trying to dive into what does this mean? Because being in the midst of suffering is a terrible feeling. Uh, it's hard. And if anybody's feeling it right now, it feels heavy and it feels like there's no place to turn and it feels like there's no way out. Um, and deep suffering can last for, for years, um, months, days, maybe minutes, but suffering hurts and it's not fun to be in it. And so instead of in my earlier life, when I was going through seasons of, of heaviness and suffering, 
uh, I would just try to work my way out of it as quickly as possible. And the more I did that, the more I felt like I was, I was numbing myself to something beautiful. I, I felt like I was just put like numbing myself to lessons learned. And so I started to read a lot and study a lot about, okay, well, what is, what does the Bible say about suffering or, or, or what is uh, like ancient teachers say about suffering and prophets say about suffering. And a lot of what they're saying is this is in the moments of deepest pain, there's the mo- th- there is the most to learn. And that doesn't sound something revolutionary. That's not a statement that I mean, maybe somebody's going to write that on their uh, notebook or something, but like, it's not a crazy, like, like, like radical statement. It's true. We all know it in our moments of deepest pain. We always have something that comes out of it that changes us, that allows us to be a little grittier, maybe have a little more character, um, love people a little bit more. Right. I mean, you hear it with the loss of a life and a family, right? My buddy right now is going through ALS. And the one thing he said was what he's learned now is um, two things. One, to enjoy the moments he has left. And then the second is to tell the people around him he loves them and to enjoy their presence. To, to Well, yeah, I hate that he's going through ALS. I don't like any moment, anything. I wish he didn't have it. But he's saying the same thing I am is which within this moment of deep suffering, he is learning something radically beautiful that's only came about because of this, because of the moment and the, and, and the fragility of life. Um, and so for those out there that are suffering, I'm saying I'm sorry. Um, but the, the final thing I'll say is also in this, you're, what, what you're feeling and what you're experiencing right now is going to allow you to be more empathetic to those around you as they also go through that. Because every one of us is going to go through pain. Every one of us is going to go through suffering. Every one of us is going to have sorrow. And so your pain, your suffering, your sorrow will allow you to be a better friend, a better family, a better partner, a better human on this earth to those who are also going through it. And that's why I'm, I have this like, I mean, I'll definitely a love-hate relationship, but this really, um, what I hope is a beautiful relationship with suffering where I say, um, in those moments, I know that something new is being reborn inside of me. So good, bro. I, that's a, I'm, I'm going to go back and listen to that part of our conversation. Cause that's an encouragement to me, even though I'm not in a season of suffering, it's also a reminder that when you, when you go through suffering, like there's purpose behind it and there's perspective that's born out of it. And I think brokenness is a powerful position because when you're broken, you're willing to ask the hard questions. You're willing to get feedback. You're willing to listen. I think God reaches us in broken moments in different ways. And for so many people, and I would say this is true of your life, like oftentimes your greatest hurt becomes your deepest or biggest ministry. Yeah. And like, that's true for you. Like you're helping people with identity crisis and you're helping people uh, with loss and you're helping people who've battled depression. And like, that's significant and important work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just want to underscore this too, because I think you're also someone who seeks truth. Like you care about the truth. I know that you're a person of faith. Um, Man, you shared this recently and it, it rocked me. You talk about the five essential truths of life. Yeah. And People need to hear this. So if you're listening, like this would be note-taking time. You're going to want to hear this. But could you unpack the five essential truths of life for us? Yeah, definitely. Well, let me uh, let me frame this up a bit. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm i just personally, like my, a lot of my life, I'm, I, I, and you can read it in the book and stuff, and you've probably already caught on to it already. I'm pretty hard on myself. Um, I, I can get in a place as... Uh, that's pretty low pretty quickly. I'm not going to say like I'm hard on myself. I'm my biggest judge or whatever. Or like that, that sounds like I'm compliment myself. What I'm saying is like, I can get to a place that's pretty low pretty quickly. 
Um, I know that about myself. I have to work on that consistently. And so typically when I um, go into a faith community or I surround myself with coworkers and I hire people on, I know um, what my skill sets are, but I also know I need people around me to encourage, to push, to, to uplift. Well, these five essential truths are not going to do that necessarily. So I, they're going to they're going to hit hard and they're going to hit fast and they're going to be really painful to understand. But I'm asking you to see the beauty behind each and every one of them here. And here's the five essential truths. Richard Rohr came up with this, but the five essential truths, it's life is hard. Um, you're not that important. Your life is not about you. Number four, you're not in control. Number five, you're going to die. And I know those are just like radically difficult to process. I mean, I know when I hear them, even I want to fight against them and push against them. And I want to figure out ways to say, no, this, this is not the truth of the world, but it, but it is. And the truth is life is hard for us, for each and every one of us, harder for many, but I don't know how you quantify pain. I don't know if there's a, a level there to, to quantify emotional pain. So life is hard for all of us. Let's just say that, right? The other big one there uh, that stands out is you are not that important. Uh, you know, a lot of our generation grew up with the idea that like you can be anything and you, you can be the greatest thing ever. And you are the greatest thing ever. And the truth is like, by saying that you're, you're uh, telling other people, not, they're not as great as you, which has never worked well for me in my life. Whenever I start to put myself on a pedestal, uh, life never makes a lot of sense. And it usually just causes a lot of pain uh, for myself and others. And so if I take the posture and I take the belief that, yes, uh, I'm valuable, I have purpose, I matter, but I'm not the greatest thing to walk this earth, then all of a sudden it puts me in a place of not only humility, but it puts me in a, in a mindset of understanding that the other people in this world matter a lot more too. Um, the other one I'd like to highlight there and just break down for a second um, is you're going to die. Well, I wrote Alone in Plain Sight and I tried to watch, I tried to look for a thread line in life. Um, that connected us all. And the one that I kept coming up with when I heard, heard people's stories and what I studied and read was uh, those two things we talked about. One is everybody's experienced pain and the truth is all of us are going to die. Because there might be the two things that we have in common the most because the other truth this is, Jordan, not everybody has experienced true joy. Um, mm. There are people in this world who have had a really difficult time. Um, there are adults who have never felt like uh, the cards have been on their side and there's kids who have suffered tremendous amounts of pain. Um, the truth is that what we all know is that we all have experienced some type of star, some type of pain that can connect us. Um, and that allows us to look at the other person, especially moments of pain and say, I'm with you. Yeah, man. Uh, you talked about empathy earlier. And I think about that in my own journey, just being empathetic to those who are hurting, mm -hmm. you know, and when you go through real hurt or loss, I think you just have a sense for and a different radar for people who are hurting, you know, like you see it in people, uh, you have great, greater compassion for people. And, um, and man, I, I, I think about the work you're doing today and the compassion that you're bringing to, to the work, right? Because you could have started a, a coffee shop. Um, you could have started a podcast and you, you could have made those endeavors about making money and building a brand. Um, but behind the work you're doing, there's a really purposeful mission yeah. And um, I want you to talk about hope still wins. And I want you to talk about generous coffee because again, somebody's hurting right now and, and you're trying to think through like, how do I use my hurt to create a ministry or how do I use my hurt to write the next chapter? Mm -hmm. And I think you've done that, man. I think you've used 
some really difficult stuff to write the next chapter of your life that's ultimately focused on others that is filled with humility. Um, And while you're not perfect, I think you've done a good job with that. So could you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing today, specifically with Generous Coffee and and Hope Still Wins? Well, a few years ago, I had to ask myself the question, like, what what is it that I really love to do career-wise? And and I I kind of went through these these things. And the one thing I I, I really love working with people, um, but I don't know what that fully means. And the other part is like, um, I like sitting... I do enjoy like sit, having a seat at the table when people are honest and vulnerable and real. And, and usually they're honest, vulnerable and real in their moments uh, that are there where they're hurting the most. Mm-hmm. And so hope still wins. We'll start the podcast is this podcast that was created on Instagram live um, where I started to, during the quarantine season, talk to people that I admired uh, and just ask them to hear their stories. Um, you know, the, I felt like, and some might disagree with me, but I felt like personally, um, that the church was getting, uh, a bad rap, especially during, um, the pandemic. I felt like there was a lot of, uh, hate being thrown at it. I felt like, uh, the church needed a new PR company. Um, I just felt like this was like swirling around faster than ever. And what I, what I felt like was happening was like, there was a lot of misunderstanding there. And there's a lot, there was a lot of yelling back and forth on both sides. So hope still wins was this, Hey, can we sit down in the middle and just hear people's stories? Can we humanize these leaders that we're looking at, not only from the church, but from other places, from politics to acting, um, to, uh, artists, to, to musical artists, to, to, uh, politicians. Can we, can we sit down for a second and just say, Hey, like help me understand why you are so passionate about whatever it is you're pursuing right now in your life. Um, and if it happens to come back to a faith, then let's dive into like, where does your faith play into this? Um, mm. And if it doesn't, then I just want to understand you and as a human better. That's what Hope So Wins is. So it's a place where you get to talk to thought leaders um, and hopefully just get insight into who they are as people to allow us to feel less alone. Because maybe if we heard somebody that we really disagreed with and we actually would say that we hated, um, that we've never actually had a conversation with on Hope Still Wins, when, maybe when you hear their story, um, you would actually be able to understand them better and say, okay, I get it. Like, maybe I still don't agree with you, but at least I can, I can care for you. I can love you still. I can, I can at least have an interest in you and I don't have to just completely push you aside. So hope the ones is out there. It's moving and grooving. It's an, a gift to me. Um, I really want to do it to build this, this network of people just conversing about life's most difficult and most vulnerable subjects. Generous coffee though. So my, my full-time job is with Generous Coffee. And I'll tell you the backstory. When I was a teenager, I went to Central America for the first time and I saw extreme poverty with my buddies. Mm. Um, and then we went back the next year and there was still extreme poverty that was existing uh, in this area. And we got angry. One, I mean, as a teenager, I was like, I don't ever want to go back here. All it does is make me feel guilty, shameful. It makes me feel like I want to like, you know, throw away my hot water tank and wear the same clothes every day and not eat anything like, and it was just this weird reaction I was having. I was like, okay, I'm learning. Like my buddies and I all got together. And we said, we're learning something here. Cause we're all feeling similar. And so one of my buddies who was a little older and a lot smarter said, Hey, what if there was a solution? Like, what if we could be a part of a solution here? What if, and just what, if, what, what if instead of just saying it is what it is uh, like Jess McRoberts says in his book, what if we actually say, when we see a problem that's this big, what if we can actually be a part of a solution? How exciting would that be? And so the solution we came up with was 
we're going to partner with these communities that are uh, completely stricken by injustice and poverty and corruption. Ask them, what do they need? What do they want? What do they dream of? And then how can we help? We're not going to go down as the saviors from the U.S. We're not going to go down with the posture that we're better, bigger, or, or more able. We're going to go down and say, hey, how can we help you as friends? And we're going to be beside you now for as long as it takes. And that's where Humane Hope United started. It's a nonprofit that is sustainable change work, uh, mostly in Honduras. It's an incredible project, and it's growing. Mm. Well, during my time on the show, our, uh, our fundraising uh, skyrocketed 500%. Hmm. Uh, because I wore a crazy bracelet that said hope on it and people bought this bracelet and then they started donating and it was this crazy cool ride. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, as much as I'd love to think that I'm going to be uh, able to, to bring in that much money forever, I knew I had a very short timetable that I could do that. So my buddy and I got together and we said, what can we do? And uh, we came up with this idea that what if we started a for-profit business? Um, we got a couple people to fund it who have had uh, very fortunate lives financially. We signed off our names uh, in the operating agreement so that we would always hold ourselves accountable, no matter how big it gets, to not being able to make any profit personally on the value of the company or on the sale of a product. I can still take a salary. I don't want this, you guys to think I'm not yet, but I can still take a salary. But that if we could keep um, that mindset in our heads that then we'll donate a hundred percent of the profits to nonprofits and social causes around the world, fighting human facing injustice. This would be the fundraising engine behind. So we'll grow a massive company. I hope generous explodes. Uh, we mostly sell coffee at generouscoffee.com. We're mostly an online retailer. So if you're listening, you can buy generous coffee. It's the best coffee in the world. Um, and then we donate a hundred percent of our profits, which is a little ambiguous. It's usually 10 to 12% of revenue. Um, to nonprofits around the world. And so that's what Generous Coffee is. It's what we do. It's what I'm building. It's what I believe in. It's what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's what I love and enjoy. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's, that's Generous. Man, and, and, and I saw you the other day, you're behind the counter serving up coffee at, at one of the local stores, right? You guys actually yeah. have a, uh, a storefront. There's a location where you can go in and buy Generous yeah. Coffee, correct? For, uh, yeah, we, we have it in Fort Wayne, Indiana now at the Good Market. Uh, we're open up in Soho, New York in a month uh, with the Good Market. And then we have a, a Generous Coffee shop in Golden, Colorado. Super cool, man. That's an awesome story. And so obviously there's a there's a website. You mentioned that. We'll link that in the show notes. Yeah. Is there anything else that we should know if we wanted to get involved in that mission, whether we're mm-hmm. directly buying coffee or just supporting the mission, like anything else that you want people to know about how they can get involved? Well, I mean, honestly, the best way is to go and, and, you know, a lot of people drink coffee is to switch to drinking generous coffee. Like that's the best way to be honest. Like it's my greatest sales pitch is just like buy generous coffee. Um, that would be a huge help. And, you know, coffee, I could go, you know, on for a long time and I got to be careful because I know this isn't what it's about, but you got to be careful of where you're purchasing your coffee. Coffee has a lot of injustices behind it um, mm-hmm. when it comes down to the producers and what they're making and how they're being treated. And so, um, you know, if you're out there and you're somebody's like, Hey, I'm drinking coffee every day and I can afford to pay three more dollars a bag to drink coffee that we know is doing good. And then giving back generous is really a good answer to that. And I'd love for as many people as possible to do it. Um, also, you know, I'd, I'd say if you get a chance, like, um, travel with us sometime when traveling can really exist and do it. Uh, it's always good to see, see it with your eyes. Uh, I can talk, you know, sit here and talk to you all day about generous and humane hope united and until you see it. I don't know how well it sinks in, 
Um, but that's it. Uh, and I'd say the final way to get involved is to go out and fight injustice in your own communities. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. generous. All we, what we talk about, we have a group of two unknown ambassadors around the, the U.S. that really uh, advocate on behalf of generous. They exist everywhere. And it's, it's great if they were the best salesmen in the world and they went out and sold our coffee and they really don't. But what we tell them to do is all we ask you to do as generous ambassadors to go out and be generous in your communities, like be community changers and makers. Look for the people that are hurting around you. I believe local um, gifting. I learned this um, local service. I, be- I learned this from Bob Dalton, who was also with us at the gathering, um, you know, is the next wave that's really going to make an impact in this world. When we start to focus locally on the people that are hurting the most, we're gonna make huge change. And so, yeah, just focus locally. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I feel your heart behind everything that you just shared. And I know that you're heavily invested and and I know that you you wanted to talk about that. You did talk about that a lot at Young Guns when we were together, yeah. you know, like, um, and I just admire the fact that that's the path you're going down. Um, Cause it would have been really easy for you to monetize the brand or sell a product or make your name famous um, and continue with that mission. Um, but I just so much appreciate that you've allowed your faith to be worn on your sleeve. You've made your mission about others. You've kept the posture of humility. And while I know you're not perfect, I really admire that. And you've got a new customer. We're going to buy generous coffee, Thanks, but we're also going to find other ways to get involved in a mission. I yeah. hope if you're listening, you too would, would do the same. And I hope that you'll go check out hopes to wins the podcast. Uh, pick up Ben's book alone in plain sight just came out February of 2021. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We're, so, we're not even a year and we're seven months in. Yeah. New book. Go, go check it out. Somebody's listening to go, man, I didn't know this guy was so deep. I didn't know he was doing so many things. I didn't know he cared about these causes. And um, yeah, man, it's, it's just a pleasure. Even though I knew a lot of this stuff myself, like I learned some things about you today and certainly was inspired by our conversation. Um, anything else that you want our listeners to know about you, the work you're doing or any, anything that you want to share before we wrap up? No, I mean, we've touched on a lot of it and I, uh, and I appreciate that. You know, I think, I think this is all, and I appreciate your kind words and it's all great. And, and really what I, I get excited about now and what fulfills me up is thinking that, you know, you and I taking an hour today to talk will maybe just uh, not only inspire me, inspire you, but inspire somebody listening to go out and care for somebody around them. I, I know I need it in my life for people to care for me. Uh, I know there's somebody out, you know, listening that they know somebody that needs them to care for them. And um, that's what I'd ask is just continue to keep that posture of knowing that, um, you're not the greatest thing to walk the earth, but people need you. And, uh, and so, and people are hurting and life is hard. Um, and so to always be alert and aware at like what kind of impact you can make in the life of somebody hurting today. And man, if that happens, I mean, that'd be a huge win. Also, if you bought generous coffee, that'd be a huge win. Hey, uh, well, I'm going to try to do both those things. So challenge Thanks, accepted, man. go help somebody who's hurting Buy generous coffee. Again, check out the podcast, Ben, dude, thank you for, uh, just who you are, first and foremost. Thanks that you're you're using your time, treasure, and talent on things that matter. And I also just want to say thank you for spending an hour with our community and our friends. Uh, I know a bunch of people got better today. They were inspired. And I hope that through this conversation, more people are impacted. So thanks again, brother. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of the Montgomery Companies Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Montgomery, and I'm so thankful that we have a community of people who continues to show up and check out these episodes. It's humbling. We appreciate it. We know that you have other things that you could be doing, but you're here hanging out with us, which is amazing. If you'd be willing to leave us a review, if you'd like or share this podcast or even subscribe, it would mean so much to us. It allows us to move the mission of impact forward and just give the conversation more exposure in an effort to help more people. 
I also want to say thank you to James Roth and John Choate of Storyline Multimedia. They do a huge job behind the scenes making these podcast conversations happen and then releasing them out into the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for spending time with us. As always, be great, be well. Have an amazing day.